0: I encourage you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 4. As we turn to Nehemiah 4, I remind you that we're in this uh, series that we have started some weeks ago, the rebuild series, and we're jumping into a place where our hero, Nehemiah, has ramped up a great endeavor, and he's done it by leaving uh, his high position with the king of Persia and returning to his homeland uh, to rebuild the city and the people, starting with a wall. Now, the leaders are on board, the people are on board. Of course, uh, Nehemiah is on board, but what we'll find out in our text today is that the local powers, uh, the local regional powers are not on board with what they are doing. And so look with me at uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we'll see how resistance rises in the midst of this. Starting verse 1, it says, when Samballot heard that we were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes! What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling or is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are days in history that are not only memorable, they change everything. December 7th, of course, changed everything, World War II. Some of us go back even generations, remember when John F. Kennedy's assassination was a sobering experience in a decade of assassinations. But probably the defining day for our generation was 9 11. And none of us who experienced it personally or watched it real time will ever forget that day. This week, we remember the 20th anniversary of 9 11. And like many of you, I'll never forget watching the World Trade Center's collapse amidst many reports of other airplanes being hijacked. It not only sent our nation into a season of fear and even into a sense of terrorism, it changed how we lived. It changed us. And it changed us as we mourn the innocent victims uh, of the terror attack. It changed how our military did war, hunting down our adversaries and assailants like Osama bin Laden. And, of course, it changed simple things in life, like how we fly in airplanes with, with each other. You know, I had to think this week. While we all knew that people didn't like us as Americans, that day took it to another level. It escalated a conflict in a dark way. We were reminded that after decades of relative peace, that, to borrow a phrase from Star Wars, sometimes an evil empire strikes back. As we look at the Scriptures today, the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of of the wall has its own version of 9-11, where an empire strikes back at God's people. Uh, We jump into the story where God's people had started to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, but pushback arises from enemies who would rather keep them down. This is a common story, is it not? Any great endeavor, inevitably inevitably encounters resistance. So that begs our question for today. When we labor to build anything good within the kingdom of God, particularly like our families or even careers or especially the church, and then someone strikes back, what do we do? How should we handle spiritual resistance that comes at us? And more to the point of our text, How does Nehemiah, our hero, handle the resistance that comes his way and the people's way? Well, Nehemiah 4 lays out a gospel strategy to help us when we feel like something is resisting us for doing good for God and his kingdom. And the resistance begins in verse 1, right here, right at the beginning of the text, after all the wall mobilization had happened, Look at what happens in verse 1. When Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews. So here's where we are in the story. After leaving his position on the cabinet of the king of Persia, the superpower leader of the world at that time, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem as the new governor of Judah. And he casts this grand vision of rebuilding the city, and particularly the wall, so that they could rebuild the people and he mobilizes the leaders, he mobilizes the people to uh, endeavor building this great work. Now, the people enthusiastically, as we saw uh, recently, get behind him after 140 years of being beat down by regional politics uh, and powers that took advantage of them. The prospects of restoration, you might imagine, when they were hearing this were, were really exciting and hopeful. However, once they start the work, our chapter lays out an immediate response of the local power broker. Sanballat, uh, of the Samaritans, gets mad. And this is instructive to us right off the bat, that when we do anything to build the kingdom of God in our families, in our community and careers, and yes, especially the church, there will be resistance. The empire will strike back. And we see there are actually two kinds of resistance in our text today— And the two kinds are external resistance and internal resistance. External resistance and internal resistance to God's kingdom. Now, externally, we read about an alliance of men led by Sanballat. Now, Sanballat was this historic person, the leader of Samaria, and according to verse 1, he mustered his army. Did you see that? He pulled his army together with rage and ranting, and he started tearing down the Jews verbally in front of the tr- troops. Now at this point we got to ask the just the obvious question, why? What's the big deal for Sanballat and all these others who were involved? Well, you got to understand building a wall was a threat to the political power structure of the region. Not having a wall meant that groups such as Sanballat, Samaritans and others around could plunder the weakened Jews in Jerusalem when their economy was up. In other words, they didn't want a wall because they love money and power. So how did Sam Bout respond? Well, he does several things in our text. In verses 1 and 2, he says that they resorted to verbal abuse by ridiculing and tearing down the Jews. They taunted God's people. They talked junk and used words to stop the advance of God's kingdom. Now, I don't know if any of you ever played in uh, kind of sports and where you would travel to other schools or other places, but sometimes when you're on a team and you travel to another place, you encounter some of this in a surprising way. When I was a a, a middle schooler or a junior higher, I played football, and we'd go to some schools, and some schools were just fine. You wouldn't get a hard time if you played, but other schools you went to them, well, man, they really brought the goods verbally. When you're walking off the bus, they're pounding you right off the bat uh, from the crowd. And I'll never forget how I was struck by it. people would just have hostility towards you and they didn't even know you. But that's exactly what's going on here. It was intended, in other words, to intimidate and to erode confidence. And that's exactly what Sam Ballot was doing in our text. So Sam Ballot not only intimidated, but he also escalated by resisting and plotting with other nations. The rest of our text says he entered an alliance with Tobiah the Ammonite, Geshem the Arab, a, a new added member of the Ashdodites, and yes, even the bites. Sorry, bad joke of a preacher. Now, the Ashdodites had been, or were added to the alliance because we've already heard about these other guys, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and of course uh, the Samaritans. They were added as yet another country. And you've got to remember that all these nations literally surrounded Judah and Jerusalem. Literally surrounded them. And like the Taliban, their intent was to gang up on God's people. Now, don't miss this, though. Sanballat was not just a thug, a part of a new mob. The groups weren't just gangs. These were nation states with leaders and armies who had political objectives. That made them very dangerous. So, what was behind their political objectives? Well, a key thing I'd highlight in the text for us is how many times Sanballat and the others were described as angry, enraged. And that is where all violence begins in the human heart, with anger. We see with Sanballat the danger of human anger. If it isn't dealt with, it devolves into darker things. Ephesians 4 says it like this, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because it devolves into bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice, all of which we see happening in this text. Sam Sambal, you see, was forming an axis of anger, and he was using words to form a narrative of Rage. Now, what makes this worse was this narrative of rage was getting around. And it, Jerusalem was hearing about it. Sam Ballat was posting it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And God's people were seeing it on their phones and getting really nervous. These were the external and escalating forms of resistance coming God's pe- to the, the way of God's people. But in light of Samballot striking back, there was also internal resistance rising up among the people too. Look at verse 10 in our text. Look at, the, look at what that says with me. It says this, In Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Internal resistance rises up in a few ways in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, the people of Judah get really discouraged that, that there is too much work for them to do as a tribe. And that some of them may have even got the, the self-pity context. Well, only we're the only ones really doing the work. None of the other tribes are really stepping up. We're left carrying the bag. The result was they believed Samballat's words that they couldn't pull this off. Then in verse 12, other Jews in surrounding towns throughout Judah were talking to those working on the wall in Jerusalem. And this is what they were saying. It was like, hey man, we're hearing all these things about how dangerous it is. You all need to come home. It's getting unsafe to build that wall. We need you at home. And then in verse 11 is this interesting text. It says this, in the middle of all these comments of what was happening internally, it says, our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. This is the confusion that they were stirring up among the people. In other words, most commentators agree that spies were in the axis of anger and were spreading rumors about among the people with tradecraft. It was a propaganda campaign in verse 11. Enemy nations were posting articles online to polarize and stir fear among the people. So, That was the internal resistance that was rising up and escalating. What's all that got to do with us? Well, here's the deal. We have an enemy, an axis of anger against us as human beings, and particularly as followers of Jesus Christ. It's sin, Satan, and the world. Sin, Satan, and the world. Satan is the master of espionage and entry, whispering lies into our ears and sometimes carrying out a version of psychological warfare that dis- discourages us and beats us down. If you're a follower of Christ, don't forget that more often than not, your enemy is not a person, it's Satan. He hates you, and he hates you so much... That he shows what he's about when he approached Adam and Eve in the garden in the form of a snake, not a human, in order to demean their dignity. He hates our humanity, and he would like nothing better than to discourage us and set believers against one another. Now, what is our response to this? Well, James 4 lays it out really clearly. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Resist the devil and he will flee, use the truth of the gospel to resist the devil and faith that follows Jesus no matter what. That's exactly what Nehemiah did in our text. The hero sees a cold war is brewing in their midst, and so how does, how does Nehemiah respond to Sanballat and the axis of anger? Well, he resists in an unexpected way. Look at verse 4 with me. After all this stuff's going on, look at him break out in spontaneous prayer with no introduction. It just goes, Hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Here's the radical thing our hero does first he prays. He prays. He goes to God first. He doesn't panic. He breaks out in this abrupt, spontaneous prayer, and he comes at God in two angles, with intercessory prayer and what we call in theological circles an imprecatory prayer. Let me put it another way. He prays for the people, and he prays against God's enemies. First, let's talk about his prayer being intercessory. He is praying for his people, and particularly for their protection, since they had started rebuilding the wall. As we've seen in Nehemiah, our hero seems to always be praying on behalf of his people. He loves them. That's the sign of love, is when you actively pray for someone. And that's because God loves them. He loves the people. And the great news of the gospel is if you mess with God's people, you're messing with God. That's why he's praying this way. Second, Did you notice that in verse 9, Nehemiah mobilizes prayer with the people? It says in verse 9, we prayed to our God, meaning that Nehemiah got everyone praying together. So here's the deal. When you feel your need, when you feel the pushback of the world, or something's coming at you that's really hard, it feels like satanic stuff's coming, here's what you need to do. Go to something like a life group Use something like a group text. Pray that God would, re- would come to your aid and get others to pray with you. Pray with others in their pushback that they're ex- encountering. You don't have to be alone. And that's what Satan will do. He'll isolate you more and more and get people from you so you feel like it's you in the world when it's never been you in the world. It's God against the world. And you are a part of his life with his people. Third, pray for justice. Did you notice that Nehemiah's personal prayer has this imprecatory sense? He's praying against the enemies. In fact, that's what an imprecatory prayer is. It's a prayer for justice and the justice of God in particular against the enemies of God. And did you know how he prayed with it in a unique way? It's kind of ironic judgment. He prays that the enemies would reap what they sow. They had sowed plundering and plundered God's people. And he's saying, may you experience that plundering. And then he gets even more radical. He prays they wouldn't be forgiven. And you and I go, what? (laughs) That doesn't sound like Christianity. Now, before we condemn this prayer... Let's remember something here. There are times when all of us, whether we're Christian or not, find ourselves wanting others to hurt in as much as they have hurt us. Let's not pretend that we don't have those thoughts. So that begs the question, should we pray this way? Well, the answer is no and yes. No in the sense that Jesus taught us in Matthew 5 to love our enemies, to pray for them, particularly in one-on-one offense. Individually speaking, we should love our enemies and bless them. In fact, Romans 12 reminds us to do good, not evil, and that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The yes in praying the imprecatory prayer comes when there are overpowering enemies that set themselves against God's people for dark and violent purposes, when one group in power intends to harm God's people, it is okay to pray for God's protection and deliverance. It's okay to pray that God will bring justice. Now, we don't encounter this a lot in America because we enjoy freedoms of religion, and we don't have a lot of pushback on our Christianity, but I can tell you this, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan... And in China, sure do. So it's very important that we understand one thing as we pray this. It's God who carries out the justice, not us. It's God who does it in his own unique way. We don't carry out the justice ourselves. Now, the key to praying like this, and I say this with all intent because there are many times I get mad and I want to pray these imprecatory prayers on different people who hurt me. But I got to tell you. This is the key to praying this prayer. And you ready for it? It's this. You need to examine yourself and the injustices in yourself before you pray about other people. If you pray this prayer without examining the injustices in yourself and how you've treated people, it will boomerang, boomerang right back to you in some way. We have to get to the point of remembering that when we get pushback and resistance in Jesus' name and we follow him and follow him together and get pushed back in other ways, we must remember Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in our trouble. He is our fortress. We need to be still and know that he is God and come to grips with our own brokenness in the process. We need to get the log out of our own eye first. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is when he says, come to me, if you do an analysis of come to me and that invitation throughout the Gospels, it's almost always to people who are thirsty, weary, beat down, afraid, hurting, wounded. I can bet today that many of you who are here are weary, beat down, wounded, hurting. And I would tell you that there is a Christ Who wants to be your refuge, who wants to be your fortress, that you can hide in Him as you run to Him. That's why He says, Come, come to me, stay with me. You'll find safety and security with me alone. You see, our gospel hope is that Jesus is our Nehemiah, He is our high priest, praying for us at the right hand of God the Father. He prays for our deliverance. He prays for justice. And he prays that his justice will come in providence and finally at the end of time when he returns. All justice will come at the second coming and everything will be set straight among relationships, culture, relation. Everything you can name will be set right. We never avenge ourselves. Jesus does it for us. And I got to tell you, his justice is always better than anything we could ever come up with always the cross is in fact the best example of ironic justice when Satan and the world thought they had defeated Christ he turned it upside down and turned it into our forgiveness but don't miss this greater irony when Jesus went to the cross you know who he he actually died for his enemies you and me This is the craziness of the grace of God and the love of God as he bleeds and dies for those who set themselves against him. This is a different kind of love and grace than you and I have ever encountered. It doesn't seem normal to us, but that's what Jesus calls us to. So then, what should we do when someone strikes back on us when we're advancing the kingdom? We start with prayer. But Nehemiah follows up with two more things in our text. In verse 6, it says, After Nehemiah prayed, the next thing he did was get back to work. Did you notice that? They just kind of started back to work. They kept their head down, did what God called them to do. Faithfulness to the task is far more important than the polarizing and flash of the enemy. But Nehemiah not only promotes prayer and work, he rallies the troops and he girds them up for warfare. Look at verse 13 with me. In verse 13, it says this, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah puts out a call to arms. And while they would periodically pray, the people would also work, and they would guard the city walls from the enemies. Now what's this got to do with us? Well, let me make a clarifying point. The analogy in this text that we sometimes get confused in American evangelicalism is, that, is, is this, that you don't need to think of us as girding up for the United States here. It's actually girding up for the kingdom of God and for the church in particular. We are engaged in spiritual warfare with principalities and powers. And while we may take hits on our personal lives and in the culture that change everything, What we can remember is that Jesus calls us to arms and that we can actually get involved in a way that makes a difference for redemption and life in our families, in our workplaces, and yes, in the culture itself as the church. To that end, Nehemiah girds up his people with swords and spears to fight the good fight. We are girded up with something different. We're not girded up with swords and spears Thank God for that, right? Could you imagine if we are all showing up with swords and spears here today? But we do have something far more powerful. It's the armor of God. If you're a follower of Christ, Ephesians 6 says that you have what you need to fight the good fight for Christ in your family, in your career, in the community, and for the church. Listen to Ephesians 6. As we face resistance together, this is what Paul tells us. Stand therefore Did you notice that you have the truth of the gospel, righteousness in Christ, a readiness with the gospel, faith, salvation, the sword of the spirit, all couched in prayer. That's what you have available to you. So here's the application. Are you afraid of something right now? If I said to you, what are you afraid of? Fill in the blank. What would you say? Something about your family, your kids? Are you afraid of something like about our culture? Because there's a lot that's concerning us, no doubt. Well, here's what I would tell you. You are not alone in the resistance. You can pray to your captain, Jesus Christ. You can be strong in the Lord and not yourself. And you can be strong in the Lord together, side by side. You're not alone in your battle. your fear. This passage is a great place to look over this week for most of you, not only in Nehemiah 4, but even Ephesians 6, to figure out what you need from God in the midst of your struggle right now. I regularly return to this passage. Remember, what is it I need right now in the midst of what feels like resistance from Satan or other things that are not of my own making? But let me be clear, this text is not a call to anger against something. Lord knows we got plenty of that going on in the world today, don't we? Everybody defining themselves against something. Now, nah, this is a call to fight the good fight for something. Nehemiah saying fight for your homes, for your family, for your wives, for things that matter. Jesus calls us to fight the good fight in the good that he has called us to do. Here's the gospel. You're not alone in the fight. Not only do you have the armor of God, we have each other at the wall, but we also have a hero like Nehemiah. In verse 14, Nehemiah says, Don't be afraid. That's the number one uh, exhortation in all of Scripture. It's everywhere. Do not fear. And why is that? Because God is great and awesome. I love that little phrase, the great and awesome God. That's military language that describes God. If there are great armies in the world, imagine the whole of the American army, the most powerful military force in history, God is infinitely greater in his power than that force. And sin, Satan in the world, the axis of anger, are nothing compared to him. God is an overwhelming force against anything he sets himself against. It's like that scene in The, in the Lord of the Rings. Remember the last movie, Return of the King? where Aragorn leads the army of the dead against the armies of Mordor and Sauron. The armies utterly destroy uh, the armies of Mordor. They are no match. The same is true with God who crushes any kind of enemy in his path. But I got even better news. Even more than bringing justice, our God has sent Christ as our defender and shield. A shield takes a blow for us, right? Well, that's what Christ did. He took the blow of justice for you and for me on the cross. And then he was resurrected from the dead to conquer the one enemy that all of us, it's the great equalizer that all of us can't conquer on our own, is death. Jesus did that. Are you afraid of someone or something today? Are you afraid of a world that seems to be increasingly hostile to even Christianity. Jesus is our gigantic, infinite sword, shield, and defender. He's our captain, our Nehemiah, who calls us to courage because he's conquered sin and death, and he's ruling at the right hand of God the Father right now. I've told the story a few times, but I only thought it was appropriate as I was praying this morning. When I was growing up, I mowed yards in our yard, in, in my neighborhood, and one day my neighbors literally next door said, hey, would you start mowing our yard because the kid up the road is not helping us. This made me a little nervous because the kid up the road was the local bully, and they were asking me to mow the yard instead of him. So one day I pulled out my mower, I went out there and I started to mow, and I kid you not, I couldn't, you couldn't have like played this out anymore. The kid walks down the road, and he meets me in the yard. I turn off my mower. He starts talking to me. So I'm the one who's supposed to be mowing this yard. Why are you mowing the yard? I said, well, listen, my neighbors just asked that I do this. I'm here to do this. That's why I'm, I'm helping them. You'll have to talk to them. And he starts to give me a really hard time about this, a little intimidating. So he's about, we'll say, three or four years older than me and probably another 20, 30 pounds bigger than me and taller than me. I'm feeling a little intimidated at this point. But then as he's talking to me, I see something happen behind his shoulder in my yard next door. And there's something going on beside a tree in my front yard. And I look closely right over his shoulder, and it's my dad. My dad's standing there right beside the tree watching this whole thing evolve. He had just gotten home. So you got the thing you got to know about Jerry Faulkner, Jerry Faulkner, my dad, is a street fighter. And I'm not talking about metaphorically. (laughs) He's a blue collar guy who grew up street fighting. (laughs) If anybody gets in it with Jerry Faulkner, it's going to be an ugly picture for them. So as soon as I saw dad right beside that tree, and this kid's giving me a hard time, you should have seen me buck up. I bucked up and I said, Look, the neighbors asked me to do this. I'm here doing it for them. If you got a problem, why don't you talk to them? And then I got, and he said, all right, whatever. And he took off, and I just started mowing and finished it up. But I got to tell you, don't miss it. The only reason I had courage to keep going was my dad was there. And nobody messed with my dad. Same's true for you. The only way you're going to have courage in the long run is if you look to your father and your captain, Jesus Christ. He's fighting the battle for you he's won it. Now he wants you to come along and fight with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all come to you. And I know that everyone in this room, including me, my family, we all are in some form of battle. We have angst about things. We have fears and anxieties. We are the people of Israel starting to shake in our boots here, Lord, in this text. But we praise you that you, Lord Jesus, are the one who comes and defends us. Our captain who prays for us, even dies for us in our moments when we were your enemy. Thank you, Jesus, that Christianity offers something different in how we handle life. Not with anger, but by following the just one who rescues lost sinners. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.